Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. What follows is an interview with Dr. Halana Darwin that discusses Dr. Darwin's experience being groomed and sexually abused. So before we have you listen to the interview, we actually wanna provide a content warning about sexual abuse, grooming, um, explicit discussions around these topics. We've provided a lot of resources in our website piece centering Dr. Darwin's interview. So you'll see different resources about sexual abuse. Uh, as a team, we consist of sexual assault survivors and survivors of intimate partner violence. So we thought it would be very appropriate and necessary to debrief after Dr. Darwin's interview. So what follows after our interview with Dr. Darwin is a discussion about these intense topics. So we always want you to know that these resources do exist um, and that as a team, we thought it would be appropriate to split Dr. Darwin's interview into two parts. So this is the first part of the hashtag MeTooPhD discussion with Dr. Darwin. If there's anything I'm not comfortable answering, I'll let you know. Um, so you don't need to be nervous about, you know, boundaries in that regard. Um, and yeah, I'm happy to keep it focused on like critiques of institutional complicity and abuse of graduate students um, and interpersonal dynamics that contribute towards it. Okay, go um, right there. Um, well, we're with. Uh, Dr. Halana Darwin. So thank you, Halana, for your time. So you just mentioned about institutional complicity. So maybe, you know, how do you unpack that? Sure. Um, yeah, so thank you for having me on. I am in the process of uh, writing a book based on my experiences of sexual abuse within the university setting. 
uh, during graduate school. And I'm hoping that not only will the book provide a really in-depth, vulnerable, thick description of the deterioration of mental health in those situations and uh, the very subtle dynamics that lead to students being vulnerable to that type of abuse. But I'm also hoping as a sociologist to apply the type of lens and framework that I've been trained in to really highlight how there are certain types of interpersonal dynamics and interactions that contribute towards the type of trauma I experienced during that time in my life, but also how there are institutional forces at play and institutional dynamics at play that create a whole nother layer of what in my mind is institutional abuse. Sometimes I sort of piggyback on Karen Kelsky talking about academia as a cult by you know, being like, okay, yeah, and there are sex cults within the cult. Like there, there are people who are very actively involved in grooming and sexually abusing graduate students and lots of bystanders who suspect this is happening and do nothing and lots of red tape that's in place to protect these people and keep the victims silent or push the victims out mm -hmm. so they don't even stick around and walk away instead. Um, and so uh, that is sort of like my soapbox now that I've graduated and something that I feel really strongly about talking about because I'm able to and because there's so many people who are currently in this situation, many of whom are under NDAs that they were um, forced into signing and really struggling with feeling disempowered and unable to process their trauma because of giving their voices away, who sometimes talk to me in my DMs on Twitter. Uh, and there's just, there's so much pain and so much need for support that isn't being offered. And I would just ask, cause this would help me too, now that everyone knows, everyone who listens um, knows my own trauma journey like I've talked openly about therapy, but like, what would your advice be, Halana, for, um, it's hard to just say how to thrive, but how to make sure you're in an environment where you're feeling comforted? Like, what does your healing journey look like? Um, that's complicated. Um, I mean, in the moment, what I, really needed was a place to scream. Hmm. And I remember calling the music department at Stony Brook and asking if there was a soundproof room <clears throat> because I felt like I didn't have anywhere I could go scream. If I screamed in a house or in an office building, people would be alarmed and think someone was getting murdered and <laughs> send the cops. If I went deep into the woods and screamed, again, someone might think someone's being murdered <laughs> and be alarmed by that. And uh, just the lack of anywhere to really just feel the despair and how overwhelmed I was and um, the anger that I wasn't really able to process because I had to keep my abuser liking me in order to get funding from him and a good letter of recommendation from him years down the road. 
and all the ostracization and stigma I was experiencing in my department for being too angry, so angry all the time. And so I just, I wasn't able to process how extremely valid and extreme my feelings were. So I, I frankly think that every university campus should have a screen therapy room. And that would be an excellent start for people who are stuck and don't have a way out. Mm, wow. Just, uh, but just I also to... was not comfortable using the free counseling services on campus because I was convinced they would report what was going on and that I would, again, lose my funding, lose the one person I was there to work with, um, mess up my entire career because of reporting to the wrong person. Mm. I, I couldn't get other faculty to step in and be mentors for me because he was the obvious person to be my mentor. And um, in order to really explain it to them, I would once again, possibly mess up my entire career future by getting him fired. Um, so I, I didn't have any access to help, to mental health help, to um, other mentorship, to get me out of being utterly dependent on him, emotionally, professionally, financially. Um, and I did in fact meet with the president of ASA at one point to ask if there was any sort of safety net in place, any sort of like yes, underground, oh, um, American Sociological Association, mm -hmm. the, you know, the national organization for our discipline. Yeah, you're big, it's like, like, it's like our MLA. Yeah, to be like, is there any way to help people mm -hmm. get out of these situations without alerting their abusers to the fact that they've spoken? Like, is there any way I could transfer to a different program, to a different school in my area without having to like uproot my family or lose credits and further be punished, like further victimized by the fact that this happened to me, but like get me out of this, get me away from him. And in a way where I can just pretend it's that this other school is a better fit yeah. so that it seems like what was the answer? Happening. Well, you kept the answer was no. The answer was I would have to apply as a new student, and I would lose all the work I had done and have to start over, and that there would be no guarantee of getting in. So, I mean, that's one like institutional mechanism that is severely missing, and I think really needs to be a discussion but also just the lack of transparency around protocol for reporting. Um, I found out when I finally did report him because I was mad that he wasn't um, retiring and was staying on the payroll after news came out about him and realized that he was playing chicken with me and I was literally letting him rake in $180,000 a year through my silence and that he was counting on it. Um, so I finally felt like my hand was forced and I had to report everything to Title IX. And he caught wind of it because I wasn't very stealthy about the fact that I was doing that. I was so mad at him and wanted him to quit. Um, and so as soon as Title IX called him in to like hear the charges, he retired and was able to pretend like he was innocent because no charges were filed. 
Um, and then after that, I finally reported with our national association and found out that they had a five-year statute of limitations in place that any abuse that was more than five years old, they couldn't act upon. And even though they knew that this man, I'm gonna say it, had put his dick in my mouth two weeks into my graduate program when he knew I was there to work with him for the next seven years. Oh, and was a new mother who had just weaned my child. Um, even though they knew that he had done that to me, they were gonna let him keep going to conferences. And I said, what about the fact that there are probably countless other victims over his 30 years of power and traveling the world and speaking to starstruck um, people who don't know any better because they're fooled by his facade of being a male feminist and being an expert on how to be a good man and just don't see it coming. Like how many people has Michael Kimmel victimized around the world? I still really want to know that. I don't think we have any sense of the scale of this man's behavior and predation. Um, and they weren't going to do anything about the fact that all of his victims <clears throat> who are afraid of running into him at conferences would avoid conferences and possibly even avoid the academy because of their legit terror of mm -hmm. having to interact with him and you know, just coming around a corner and seeing him with no warning. Like I still get very nervous if I ever go to Prospect Park for a party because I know he lives blocks away. And what if he happens to be on a walk through the park that day and I see him? And like, I have to brace myself every single time I go to Prospect Park for what I would say to him if I saw him. And I also brace my husband to know what he would say and uh, encourage him if he ever has that opportunity to have no mercy. Yeah. Um, but I had no support. No one cared. No one cared. Even when I came out on social media about it recently and my happy birthday message to him for his 70th birthday, which uh, what made us run. Huh? What, uh, what month was that? Do you remember? Oh, God. When was that? Whew. I don't know. Maybe uh, February, I want to say. February or March. That um, everyone finally, like the public or those who follow you knew that you had come forward. Was that the moment? Uh, well, I had, I had said his name and I had made it clear that something bad happened to me, but I hadn't said the detail of what he had done. Um, in part because I was still trying to keep the door open to becoming a professor and didn't want the scandal of the specifics out there or the victim blaming to be out there for all the trolls who would say that I wanted it or whatever. Um, and yeah, so I, I hadn't said that. I was also very worried about him suing me because he has a lot of lawyers and a lot of money. Um, but I, at that point, felt emboldened by my email trail with him that is hard proof if he were to ever come after me for libel and was like, you know, people just need to know like once and for all that this was never hearsay. These were not just rumors. Like this really did happen. This guy really was a monster. 
Um, so I got a Google alert reminder that it was going to be his birthday the next day. I have no idea why I get these reminders. I should really figure out how to turn it off. Uh, but it really got to me. And so I decided, you know what, fuck it. Like, this is the last step for me to feel freedom and to like refuse to feel shame for what happened to me and to put the shame on him. So I um, did a whole thread where I laid out all the things he had done to me about grooming me when I, or love bombing me when I was a prospective student reaching out to him, um, making me dependent on him and his offers of help to help me get into graduate school. Uh, he was also offering me a lot of emotional support and friendship that I was really dependent on as a really lonely, isolated, stay-at-home mom with a new baby in a place where I didn't have any family or anything. Um, and then introducing the sexual element through grooming and um, saying that he wouldn't do anything with me if I was his student, which led me to choose to go to Stony Brook because I thought that was the only way I could be safe and keep him as a mentor. And then two weeks into my program, I guess he changed his mind. Um, so I laid all that out and it made its rounds, but nobody from my university had my back. Like not, there was no, there was no vindication in that sense of people being like, oh my God, I had no idea it was that bad. I wish I had known I would have supported you or people who did know apologizing. Um, none of that happened. I'm glad I wasn't doing it primarily for that. Um, and then I got really upset about the fact that ASA still hasn't um, announced to people anything clarifying reporting protocol or the fact that after my outrage about them not caring about what happened to me, they actually did change the policy and got rid of the statute of limitations, but mm -hmm. they never announced it. They never told people that they had lifted that statute of limitations, which means anybody who's been sitting on a complaint that was too old to report could file it now mm -hmm. and get justice. But ASA clearly doesn't want them to do that because they're not making that announcement. So I tried to put pressure on them to make that type of announcement through a video I put on Twitter. It wound up being viewed 8,000 times um notionally among academics and sociologists specifically and calling on asa to first of all apologize to victims it has silenced through this misguided statute of limitations and clarify its protocol and they have refused to do it so i'm a little alarmed that nobody has had my back in the sense of circulating a petition or mobilizing to put pressure on them to do this. Um, because it's not just me. It's not about a popularity contest. How many friends do I have who would have my back? What about all the victims? Mm -hmm. What about the popular cultural traction Me Too allegedly has? I'm not seeing that make any sort of actual structural institutional change in the way that that change has to happen in order to protect future graduate students and junior faculty from this type of sexual abuse from their superiors. 
um, like it's no surprise to me that ASA is not doing what I'm asking them to do. They're obviously protecting themselves. I'm sure tons of people on the board have committed this type of sexual abuse more than five years ago and don't want it reported. Mm. Like it's not confusing to me that they're staying silent. But the fact that all of these sociologists who allegedly care about social justice mm. are like missing the opportunity or refusing to act on the opportunity to make accountability happen um, is pretty baffling to me. Like yeah. even within feminist sociology, I apparently am so unpopular and such a pariah. I was dying. I was struggling with suicidal ideation. I was barely holding on. Yeah, I probably wasn't very fun to hang out with. Um, but the fact that all these other victims are being punished for that along with me through this refusal to show any sort of solidarity is really just appalling. Yeah. Well, and um, our listeners have heard uh, Shruti, who is in women's gender sexuality. Yeah, stuff. I know Shruti. You yeah. know Shruti very well, yeah. And um, Shruti changed the committee because there was someone on her committee who's accused of sexual harassment and mom was the word from, okay. and it's not like I want to, air this out, but it's out there because there hasn't been institutional support and rallying, just like with you, Helena, that, you know, and the faculty do say, report if something has happened to you. Like, we want you to report your Me Too claims, but then what happens once all of that is aired and the silence is so thick on the campus? They do nothing. Um, and it's beyond that. Uh, so, I was pressured to report before I felt safe doing so. And when it was very directly against my best interests professionally to do so by people in women and gender studies, by feminists, uh, they wanted me to sacrifice myself to the cause, to some sort of cause. It, they had no concern for my safety or well-being whatsoever. Um, and when I refused to do that, I lost support. Someone withdrew from my dissertation committee as a punishment. Wow. Because she thought it was unfair of me to put her in the position of um, hinting at what was going on if I wasn't going to act on it. And if it was gonna result in her having to be on a committee with him. And so instead of supporting me, and being a mentor to me, she saved herself, I guess, and turned her back on me and still continues to treat me horribly. When I ran into her at a conference, the last conference I went to, she gave me a very nasty look. Um, so- okay, like when she came forward, is, it wasn't like she then embraced you. No, no. And I tried to get her to amplify my stuff on Twitter and she ignored me. So she's had many opportunities to uh, do the right thing by me and continues to refuse to do so. But it's such a feminist, such a feminist. Uh, so, and, and also I tried to get a lot of support from the feminist sociology organization, made it very clear to them that I needed a support group for me to um, PhD survivors so that I could find 
my people and have community and process this with other people going through similar things. And they were too worried about professional li institutional liability and um, refused to give me space to do it. They refused to even let me do a themed dinner for it on one night of the conference where people could sign up to host themed dinners of any topic they wanted to be the center of conversation. So I was um, actively denied the support that I so explicitly asked for by so the So you, you wanted a themed dinner where the topic of conversation would be Me Too and University. Me Too PhD stuff. Yeah. yeah. And where we could like which, support each other. Which sounds like a desperately needed conversation. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> I mean not to not to be redundant. I mean that's what you've been saying. But, right. Yeah. I, um, but they were too worried about getting in trouble as an institution if somebody got triggered or whatever. So uh because of being concerned about themselves, they denied me the help I needed. Well, and this is the bureaucracy of, mm -hmm. right, how the university functions as a type of almost Fortune 500 company where they care so much more about lawsuits and like, but like you're saying, Helena, yeah. there's also the capitalizing on feminist issues and teaching that pedagogically, but are, is it actually happening in practice? And the answer is it's not happening. In the Absolutely not, absolutely not. Um, but also, I mean, we have to look at things like how mandatory reporting mm -hmm. resulted in me being terrified into silence and isolation and prolonged dependence on my abuser mm -hmm. because I couldn't tell anyone out of fear that they would report it and I would lose the one person who was helping me with my research and gonna let, write me a letter of recommendation and give me my funding. Um, also the, the financial dependence factor that I keep talking about of like these big scholars are the ones who you get your funding lines through. They have a lot of power. And with that power comes um, fear from the people they're abusing about what reporting them would mean for them and you know their families and like whatever, whatever it means to have that funding coming through that person. Uh, and also just the system where the big names, uh, those letters of recommendation mean so much on the job market that they know that these big name people know that they have that kind of power and they're able to get away with this stuff because of knowing that their victims want to keep them happy and keep them liking them so that they'll write them a nice letter eventually. Yeah. Well, so there are all these different institutional layers that are enabling this system to stay in place and to keep happening and nobody's doing anything about it. Do you think, um, I keep thinking about this idea of democratizing the university or, and I know I'm not the first to think about that because it's a very social media concept with democratizing content. But if, if the voice of these scholars was more democratized and there was a spreading out of even graduate students being seen as scholars, which they are, that, that elitism would break, the bubble would burst. And there would be more of a, you know, way of voicing if 
harassment's happening without that fear of I've now lost my funding or I can only rely on that voice. Do you think it, it starts to make sense why there's some who are really fighting for power? It makes um, sense, but institutions have ways of protecting themselves mm. from other people, from, from being democratized, if you will. Yeah, well, which is why um, uh, I don't want to say that the podcast, interestingly, the podcast has been, and we say this all the time, Halana, so this isn't like <laughs> the administration doesn't, uh, it's not like we're hiding this from the administration. The administration actually always reaches out to us and says how much they want to work with us on issues of mental health and issues around trauma. So, you know, that this is a call to them too. Like this is happening on campus and, you know, yes, Michael Kimmel is no longer there, but there are other harassers. Oh, well, there are other people in my department who are currently there who I know for a fact have been sexually harassing graduate students on the faculty. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's important though to talk about how what it actually means in practice to support people who are going through trauma. Yeah. So I feel like it should have been obvious that something bad was happening with me because of how angry and distressed I was all the time. And um, that, you know, people need to understand that when they're observing that type of behavior from someone, it's probably because they are in fight or flight mode mm -hmm. and something is triggering some sort of traumatic response from them um, that isn't rational and doesn't make sense and is, you know, like too big for the situation or out of place for the situation. And instead of um, distancing themselves from it because it seems unprofessional and, you know, punishing the person for it, figure out what is going on. What's it about? Because it's probably something immediately in the environment that they're in. So if that's your classroom or if that's your department, that's something you need to lean into and pay attention to, not walk away from. Figure out what is going on right under your nose that's creating this type of distress and reaction from this student in front of you. Wow, it's so important, Helena. And again, this is the tip of the iceberg. Just, you know, and again, I don't want to, my therapist says this all the time, is what I'm unloading onto you distressing you or like, do you feel that way of, um, you know, how much you're changing other people's opinions and giving voice and agency. But I see that with you, Halana, that this, like you said, there's so many who've reached out to you who wish they could speak out about the abuse, the trauma they're going right. Um I mean, I'm not going to say specific faculty members' names, but when I came out with and I've been very upfront that my sexual assault happened right before my oral exams. Two months, three months, the timeline, you know, it gets blurred in that fight or flight mode. Um, but once I came forward that this happened off campus, but now that it's out there that 
just like how much I was trying to process at that time and any kind of obstacle that happened to me through that experience was amplified because you know that it's, you're kicked back into this, I just need to get out of this situation mm -hmm. um, with everything intact. And I did have a few faculty members who did reach out and, you know, were showing support, but like as a department, there's never been a department message. And mine isn't something on campus, which I don't even know what that, like the way that you voiced that and, you know, really put yourself out there, Halana, that if it's hard to unify around someone's assault and trauma that's not even on campus, what is it like if something was happening within our department? Like, and you're trying to voice it as you're still a PhD student, which, you know, like I understand why you're saying there are those in sociology who have been silent or like the students, why they haven't voiced um, what's been going on because they're still trying to rely on sometimes the abuser, um, a lot of times the abuser and, you know, when you still see these abusers getting rewarded, I mean, I, I can't, I can't try to put myself into how you analyze that, but it is like, I see that these abusers are still working. Well, some, something that kind of sickens me is my way of trying to get out of that situation as fast and uh, safely as I could was to publish like crazy, yeah. was to make it absolutely guaranteed that of all people, I at least would get a job offer and get out of there, mm -hmm. and that I would get a professorship and that this wouldn't be the worst thing that ever happened to me. I'd be able to reframe it as like whatever, it all wound up being for a reason. I became a professor, it had a happy ending. And that's not what happened. I published like crazy. I had eight, um, seven solo authored, one co-authored article um, in the You've end. had the most publications I've ever seen. Yeah, yeah. From a PhD candidate. And I mean, like yeah. I've, I've seen your scholarship and I'm so impressed. I'm yeah, like, and it's oh, cited like crazy. Perfect candidate. It's had a huge impact on the field. Um, I, two gender and society solo authored articles. Uh, I've got my book contract, like, you know, almost immediately after graduating, I like have had a big impact on the field. And um, all of that was supposed to be, you know, currency towards getting a job, but I never got hired. And that's not a coincidence. Mm -hmm. It's not a coincidence that I never got hired. Like, yes, it's a bad market for everyone, blah, 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 blah. But I saw assistant professors CVs and mine was better as a graduate student. And yet nobody would offer me a job. So, you know, is that because I didn't have a world famous person working his network to try to help me get a job and writing me a letter of recommendation like so many people I was going up against had? That's part of it. And I knew that I couldn't afford to lose that. And that's why I never reported him. 
Is it because I negatively networked throughout the years at conferences while in deep trauma and maybe word spread that I was angry or a wild card or whatever? Yeah, that's probably part of it. And that's also something he did to me. Um, is it because of the lack of support I got from other people in my department, faculty, and uh, that leading in the end to me not having anyone else who could really speak to my merits once he left and instead just sort of had a motley assortment of people who barely knew me, who I had to rely upon for letters of recommendation. Yeah, that's part of it too. Um, none of it was about my scholarship though. My scholarship stands for itself, but uh, because I'm ultimately having to walk away and try to figure out a new career, which might mean having to take an internship in industry in order to gain entry-level experience to start that new journey, which is pretty um, a hard pill to swallow <laughs> after 10 years in graduate school. Uh, but, you know, it means that all that publishing I did that was supposed to be for a reason and was supposed to give me a future was just free labor for a discipline that was abusing me. And that was happy to accept my contributions, theoretically and empirically, to its success in the long run, but not valuing me enough to give me an invitation to stay. So that's just another layer of me feeling abused and taken advantage of and exploited by a discipline that refused to give me the justice I wanted, still refuses to issue an apology to me and other people who it put in this situation. Um, refuses to really take a stand on anything having to do with gender violence. When the massage parlor shooting happened, they were very quick to speak out against anti-Asian racism, but said nothing about misogyny or gender, even though that was a pretty huge part of what had just happened. Mm -hmm. um, so, so yeah, I regret it. I regret giving sociology so much of me and um, helping them as a field as much as I have since I got lifelong trauma and risk in exchange and no job. Thus concludes the first part of our interview with Dr. Helena Darwin and the hashtag MeTooPhD series. Part two will be released next Wednesday. What follows right now is a roundtable with the Ivory Tower Boiler Room team, including myself, Adam, Erica, and Mary. And as a trauma-informed group, we work through the interview that we had just heard. And as a team, we were listening to this together and then recorded right after hearing the interview of Dr. Darwin. So this is only part one of our roundtable. So part two will also come out right after part two of Dr. Darwin's interview.
because be, so one thing that I thought was really fascinating as I was listening was like I I found myself focusing on how calmly Alana was talking, but there was this. I noticed this in, during the interview, and I noticed it now when we were listening again. There was this edge of intensity and anger behind the calm, and that to me, that registers once again. I mean, she mentions it in the video, but it, it registers once again. That's a woman who's fighting for her life, right? That's a woman who is who who is taking care of business because if she doesn't, she will die, and. Unfortunately, as she mentions in, in the video, I do mean that literally, right? She was very much on, on the knife's edge for a long time. And going back to that place with us that, that we are so privileged to have her do, um, and that we're so lucky that she's willing to do, because we've had, we've had people, we've had people um, who flamed out of grad school. Uh, Helena did not do that, she graduated. We've had people who had difficult experiences in grad school and just don't want to talk about them. We are really lucky. Like Andrew and I know this because we've been trying to get people to interview for us and they've just said, no, I'm not revisiting that, right? And we're really lucky to have Halana being willing to go on the record on her Twitter, on her Instagram, with us, everywhere that she's done it. We're, um, and, and to really hear what's behind that person, right? What's behind, or like, you you see a person in the um, in in your in your graduate department who's not acting in a professional way, as Alana says, and obviously that idea that there's only one way to act—that's nonsense. But you see somebody who's not acting in that one way that everybody has to act; otherwise, they're being unprofessional. And maybe now you'll think to ask yourself why. Is it because they're unprofessional or is it because they're going through something? It might not be this. It might not be that they're getting sexually harassed by their dissertation advisor. It might be something else. It, and maybe you'll ask yourself why. I hope you will. Andrew, yeah. you were saying I, something about by, bystander training. Yeah, well that and I want to recognize Helena um, sent us how to frame and talk about what happened to her, which I think it's really important that we center her narrative and center her wording. Um, so I just want to read that. Um, she said, make sure that you use the phrase sexual abuse because what Michael Kimmel did to her quote, he abused his power to get sexual favors from a subordinate. I think the most concise phrase is sexual abuse, end quote. Um, and the reason I want to center that is as a sexual assault survivor, it's important for us to clarify and make sure we get our narrative out there. Um, I, yeah, mentioned bystanders because what happened, like I said, my experience is different than Helena's. Mine was off campus um, and not a university employee or anyone related to the university. Um, but even in my case, where there was that distance, the type of anxious spiral I was feeling during my exams, no one questioned why I was so distraught. Instead, they said, oh, this is the academic culture. That's a problem. Why is academic culture supposed to be anxiety spiraling? 
that's very frightening. And I think I look back at that time and I realized, like Adam said, there's a lot of tone policing in academia of, you know, accept the gaslighting or accept the chaos because it should be, something should be unstable. And I think that that's exactly why I was so, I'm in all of Halana. Um, I've expressed that to her and Halana, I know you're listening. Thank you for um, your bravery in this. This is no small feat. Um, and I know you made me feel welcome and you made me feel seen. And you, I trusted you when I was going through my abuse too. So I opened up to Halana during that time. She was actually one of the first, she was one of the first people I talked to at the university. Um, I did tell my family first, then I started to talk to close friends. And this will happen in the next part, but Halana opens up about how she trusted in some of her friends as well. And I get mentioned. So I didn't know what Helena was going through. And I did try, you know, we discussed like, this is such an abuse of power and it's textbook grooming. And I think before we hit the record button, Erica was explaining a lot of like how that was the triggering that she experienced as a fellow survivor. And I know Erica's triggering is a little different than mine. And that's yeah. to be expected. We each have different triggers. And I, but when Erica registered, right, it's, I don't, the grooming and the manipulation to me is what is most, why I wish the bystanders, and there's op, an opportunity still. So that's why I wanted us to release this because this culture needs to change. Bystanders need to jump in and say, this is not acceptable behavior and we need to report it and not rally around the abuser. Don't rally around the abuser. You have to support the person being abused. Yeah. Um, and we would be remiss if we didn't mention, as we do in the podcast, um, our, one of our very first interviews, Shruti Mukherjee, who, dropped somebody from her dissertation advisory panel because he was an alleged abuser. And the dissertation advisory panel rallied around the alleged abuser. They, the rest of them dropped out of her solidarity, in solid, out of her panel in solidarity with her alleged abuser. This was in a women's gender and sexuality studies department. So it's, it's a lot easier to be a feminist when it's not in your in your own yard. And we've broken this up into two, oh, so I know Erica wants to speak. I just wanted to say real quick that we broke this up into two parts. The first part, our description is the university, oh, and I've discussed this with Helena, so she approved our terminology. She, um, that the university proclaims feminist pedagogy, but it doesn't match the experience of sexual abuse on campus on how to report. And I think that that tension is where the problem lies. Like you need to rally around those who are being victimized, abused. Um, 
Yeah, and it is, I mean, eventually we will get to how the administration responded because we did give them a voice and it's important to acknowledge that. Um, but before we do get to that, I know Erica has been wanting to say something. So I do want Erica to speak. <laughs> oh, thanks. Now I have a couple, I mean, I have a couple of thoughts. I mean, I wanted to point out when you were talking about um, um, uh, there are a couple of things. So um, you were talking about speaking out and I know that I wanted to acknowledge that for both you, Andrew, and for me, the opportunity to speak out and that process of speaking out were really essential in getting us to where we're at on our healing journey. And I mean, it's an ongoing thing. And I think for me, continuing to talk about it, even though it is difficult and painful and awkward and uncomfortable sometimes is an essential piece of that both in bringing it into my own sort of wholeness and into you know how much of how much of it is that is is defining me at any given time um you know as it's 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 just another label along with the rest of the labels I have. Um, but, you know, which one fits and how do they kind of fit together? Um, I wanted to um, also going back to what Adam was saying about one right way to act um, and what you had talked about, about uh, graduate students and graduate school and anxiety and everything like that. I was an undergrad and so in spite of having a lot of fairly typical reactions, I guess the behavior changes or whatever I was doing or expressing or however I was sort of experiencing it to other, to other people, to observers or bystanders, perhaps, um, might not have looked like it would have been out of the ordinary for an undergraduate student and was probably dismissed by a lot of people as, oh, that's just what they do. You know, I was, I was 19, you know, it was, that's just what they do kind of thing. Um, and it didn't mm -hmm. help that the I mean, very first person that I, tried to tell was like well what do you want me to do about it you know what difference did it make it was just like unfortunately that's so common and that's the sad thing yeah um, and it's also oh, yeah. i mean it was your, how much you trust someone when you tell them especially um when you face gaslighting for your own victimization and that was very common for when i opened up at the beginning to people now i really have a voice of knowing my journey. Um, so it's not really easy to gaslight me anymore. Thank God. Um, but it doesn't mean it's kind of like what I said about the department. Huh. Having individual people reach out to me meant so much. Those mm -hmm. faculty who did acknowledge and reached out, I felt very seen and that they understood that type of precarity and journey 
So when your department though doesn't have a unified message about abuse, it is very saddening because I think, well, what does this whole, yes, this is, it's wonderful that individual faculty members have listened and they wanna do better, but you need everyone on board. You need a unified message. And I think wh what's happening with these departments? Like I've heard from, I've heard from so many individual faculty from multiple departments, but I never hear a unified message from, you know, the entire department. I don't think it's just departments anymore. I think it's just the institution, like these universities and college policies in general. It's gonna happen in any department that it can. Yeah. As long as there's a bad seed somewhere, it's gonna, if you allow it to sprout, it will sprout. You know, it's just at what point do you pluck bad plant from the group, regardless, even if it's your best growing plant. Right, that's a fair point. Um, you have to assume that there's a significant amount of sexual assault, sexual abuse, things like that. I mean, it 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 actually hurts to say, but you have to assume that it like the banality of it is what's scary, right? It's going on a lot, and so the que like. The, the shame should be if you have absolutely no recorded cases of it happening, because you know you have cases of it happening, you're just refusing to record them. And it's not like there's not, you know, Clary Act and federal reporting requirements for colleges and universities. That was a, a big piece of what I wrote about when I wrote my thesis mm -hmm. was, was, you know, I mean, we, we, my thesis was on the campus and community response to sexual assault. And there was the clinical piece and then there was the technical piece and I handled all the technical stuff. You know, what were, what were our ideal structures for reporting? What were the requirements and, you know, setting up, you know, model systems for you know, for support and things like that. So, I mean, the requirements exist, but people will do as much as they can to um, keep their noses shiny. Exactly. My question for any university would be, how much, how much money are you willing to lose in order to do right by your students, mm -hmm. right? Because we, because if you think about it, like uh, a lot of these places are opening up new dormitories, shiny new dormitories, right? With amenities and stuff like that. So they're claiming, here's how much money I'm willing to spend on my students. When of course, what they're doing is upping the rent. So that may be, may be a bad example. Um, but at least, right? The, they're, they're spending money on psychological services. Some of, not, not always adequately. But they are right they have all this money going into administration supposedly to um, help their students process different problems my question is are you willing to stand up to a professor like the one that Helena will be talking about in uh in these two episodes 
who brings in money to the university, right? Are you willing to say no? Are, are you willing to say there will be other professors, there will be other charismatic professors, there will be other professors who are good writers, there will be other professors who are gifted speakers, there'll be other professors, like right now in this moment, what we focus on is preventing this person from destroying lives, from but destroying, seen, and we know it doesn't happen, but it would be nice. Yeah. I mean, I was gonna say, we, we've seen that happen with, um, is it with Larry Asper, and I forget which university he was working for, or with- Sorry, who? Uh, Larry Nasser, who was the doctor for the oh, Olympic yes. team and worked at one of the universities in Michigan, or Jerry Sandusky and Penn State. I mean, all of, you know, all of those things. It's it's you know, and then I mean, I'm thinking, trying to remember to um, when we were researching the mental health episodes that we did back in you know, you know, in the winter, and. Oh, I can't remember the decision, but it was something like one in one counselor to, I want to say it was like 1,600 students or something like this, something completely, completely outrageous. There's such an, you know, an inadequate number of people, even interns dealing with on-campus student mental health. And when you're in a situation like that, you know, you're even in a situation where you're questioning the safety of going through that process, even if it is supposed to be confidential, because you don't, you know, your your trust has been so violated in so many ways that you know you can't you can't really you know expect that everybody's going to feel comfortable trusting the systems in place that are supposed to protect them in the first place mm -hmm. and then to have them be the same administrative systems that are responsible for you know the care and feeding of the person who has groomed and now assaulted you i mean come on yeah well and i you know. if i can add into the conversation <laughs> i think it's also the reason why we're doing this talk back is because that's a lot like I've listened to this about three times I told the team to edit and think about how to frame this so we make sure that it is trauma-informed podcasting um, I borrow that from trauma-informed pedagogy um, and that you know as a survivor, I know like how triggering these conversations can be, especially just if we just presented it to you without any discussion, I think that wouldn't be appropriate. Um, or- You can tell them how much I've been squirming on Zoom. I mean- Yeah, well, and yeah, I'm trying to avoid that to kind of, you know, I'm trying What's to- that? It's It's been hard to watch. We wanna, we wanna reach out and hug you, but we can't because Zoom doesn't have a hug feature yet. <laughs> Yeah. Thanks. You know. Uh, I, and I, I think that I now see the type of paranoia I had about my exams, thinking that someone had it out for me and 
like, oh, I'm going to fail this because I am inadequate and I'm not a good scholar and I'm the doomed grad student, right? Like that that state of imposter syndrome seems so common, but for me, it was coming right from a soul. So no, it wasn't common. It was a fight or flight instinct of paranoia. But that people thought that that was acceptable behavior. Mm-hmm. You know, because Adams always said, Andrew, I never knew you went through that. And I'm like, well, you just thought I was, you know, experiencing grad stress. It's like, no, I was experiencing trauma. Um, I was a very different person before I was raped. Um, you know, I feel like now I've gotten back a lot of my life in this last year. And it's been a tough journey. I mean, it hasn't been always optimistic, but, you know, thankfully I could trust my therapist and I did find a very good therapist at the university. So I got matched, you know, nicely the way you should be able to confide in a therapist. But I do want to mention when Helena brought up a lot about, um, like I do what the administration, we posted the letter for you to see in response. Um, we wanted to make sure we did our journalist integrity where you see the voice for the administration. Um, I will read the last line though, cause I think it's important. It says, Dr. Michael Kimmel is no longer associated with Stony Brook University the university will not comment on specific personnel matters. And that is after they said they're launching an online sexual harassment prevention training program, hiring specialists, including a complainant navigator um, and launching the report it campaign. So they've spoken to the protocols of reporting like Erica's alluded to about the work she's done on reporting. What troubles me is that when the investigation was going on, they're not allowed to comment because the Title IX investigation is going on. When the abuser leaves the university, they can't comment because he's no longer at the university. And when he was doing the actual abuse, they didn't comment because there was complicity. So just want to put that out there. When do those who stand by an abuser actually speak out is my question. I think part of it also needs to be a societal thing in that we don't view sexual abuse or sexual assault as the serious crime that it is. I mean, yeah, some cases, you know, depending on the severity, which that shouldn't even matter. But of course, we all know it fucking does. Sorry. But um, like it's just it's gross to me because in any other situation like if this dude was murdering people this the school would have nothing to do with investigating him it would immediately become a criminal case so why is it that sexual assault sexual harassment is treated like it has to be an in-house investigation when in reality in the outside world it's not it's a literal crime this dude has been committing and he's literally been allowed to get away with it okay we're gonna put a bookmark in this 
please continue the conversation with us at our website, ivorytowerboilerroom.com. You'll find our blog there, as well as links to our Twitter, Facebook, email, and our donate button, so you can support what we do here. Thank you for listening. And now here's our theme song, Lover Man, written by Jimmy Davis, Roger Ram Ramirez, and James Sherman, in a new rendition co-created by Anne-Sophie Anderson and Megan Ames. Mm -hmm. 